Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About Surveillance. It is said that a city dweller in Great Britain is now filmed by closed-circuit camera once every five minutes. In New York, some 10,000 cameras peer down on public streets from lampposts and buildings, a threefold increase in the last six years. Vehicles are tracked by global positioning satellites. Dogs have locator chips inserted under their skin. If you don't trust your nanny, you can buy a nanny cam, a digital recorder so small that it can be inserted in a smoke alarm or a teddy bear. Surveillance has become a way of life, and the devices that track our comings and goings are increasingly linked as different databases are integrated in a global information net. So the camera that scans your eyeball at the airport may soon link you to a record that includes everything from your family holiday in Barbados last Christmas to your pot bust when you were 14. This brave new world is our subject on ideas tonight. The program concludes a 10-hour series called In Search of Security. It's presented by David Cayley. It's often been said that September 11, 2001, marked the beginning of a new era. Amongst its signs were the sweeping new powers of surveillance that were claimed by Western governments, even as the wreckage of the World Trade Tower still smoldered. But in another sense, September 11th marked more of a coming of age than a new departure. What some call surveillance society had been incubating for a long time. Consider, for example, the communications security establishment. Largely unknown to Canadians, despite its nearly 900 employees and $100 million budget, it conducts so-called signals intelligence, sweeping international communication networks for messages of interest to the government of Canada. After September 11th, the CSE gained a power it had previously lacked, the right to monitor communications originating in Canada. But the organization has existed in its present form since the 1970s, when it became part of an international surveillance network comprising the United States, Great Britain, Australia, and New Zealand. Mark Perry teaches law and computer science at the University of Western Ontario. This is what he's been able to find out about what this secretive agency does. What they have established is listening centers in key points around the world that can um, intercept electromagnetic communications and very sophisticated computers, mainly large databases, and software that can scan the content for keywords. And as far as we can tell, as far as I can tell, this is all the software does. It scans content for keywords. Is all telephone intercourse in Canada under surveillance in that sense? Yes. <laughs> it sounds incredible, but yes. Potentially, everything that goes through a telephone or a cell phone or a, a computer network is sniffable and inspectable by uh, one of these agencies. 
So obviously, recording the entire day's communication mm. is impossible. So this is where the keywords comes in, or they have apparently. Again, this most of this is hearsay because there's no published official data on exactly what these systems do. But from what you can gather, they have a hit list of interesting words like bomb or uh, shoot the president. So there's a hit list of words that might be interesting to Secret Service or anti-terrorist or other government organizations that deal with security. And um, anything that triggers the hit list will trigger some further inspection of the message concerned, bumping it up to one higher level of inspection so it gets a more sophisticated passing of the contents of the message. The remarkable capacities of the communications security establishment are an example of the surveillance power that was already in place before September 11th. But new laws, as I've said, have now extended this agency's reach into Canada. And the new architecture of surveillance is not yet complete. The Justice Department, for example, is now gestating a plan which would require all Internet service providers to facilitate police access to Canadians' Internet dealings. Rock Tasse speaks for the International Civil Liberties Monitoring Group in Ottawa. It is not yet a bill, but it, it's a legislative project, an intention of the Department of Justice to introduce a legislation that would force Internet service providers to modernize their own technology at their own costs so that each time the RCMP or the uh, CSIS has them, we want to see all the communications, all the emails that Mr. Cayley, all his communications in the last, let's say, six months. The uh, internet service provider not only would have a record of to whom, with whom you've been uh, talking over the internet, but they would have a physical record of the content of every email you have sent or received. They would have to keep records, physical records, being able to retrieve all the web pages that you have visited on on the net. And uh, at any request from the services, uh, the secret services, the police, they would have to, they would be legally bound to hand over those physical records of every web page you visited or every piece of communication you have had. This idea Rock Tasse says, is still at the discussion stage. But such a law already exists in Great Britain. According to the provisions of the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, which again became law before 9-11, British Internet service providers must install a black box which reroutes intercepted messages directly to the central monitoring station of MI5, the British intelligence agency. A warrant is required, but the warrant must be kept secret on pain of imprisonment, so neither the targets nor anyone else will ever know the scope of the surveillance. Secrecy is also a crucial element in the conduct of surveillance in the United States. Kate Martin directs the Center for National Security Studies, a Washington-based research and advocacy organization interested in harmonizing national security with civil liberty. She describes the package of surveillance authorities that were introduced into American law after September 11th. There's less 
oversight by the courts of the surveillance. There's less transparency about the surveillance when it's finished so that there's no check on abuse because when the surveillance is finished, it's still kept secret. And there are fewer protections against surveillance based on religion or surveillance based on lawful political activities than there were before. The most disturbing aspect of the surveillance that's conducted specifically for national security purposes is that it is always kept secret from the target of the surveillance. So, for example, if the FBI gets a warrant to search an American's home for national security reasons, and to do that it has to make some showing of probable cause and some showing of connection to a terrorist group. But that American will never be told that the FBI was in their house photographing all of their papers and making a copy of their computer disks and their hard drive. So that means that there's no check after the fact, even, against abuse of that kind of authority. The most ambitious surveillance proposal put forward in the United States after September 11th is a scheme to identify terrorists that goes by the name of total information awareness. It's the brainchild of a division of the Defense Department called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which also dreamed up the Internet a few years back. What DARPA hopes to do is uncover suspicious patterns of behavior by mining the entire range of databases maintained by governments, businesses, and institutions. In theory, this universal information trawl might link, let's say, a subscription to a suspect magazine, travel to a suspicious destination, and an unusual financial transaction to create a profile warranting further inspection. Congress initially declined to fund this proposal, but this has not brought an end to the program, Kate Martin says. They broke up the research program into several parts. They did not stop all research on it, and then they made secret some of the parts of the research program. So the Congress can crow about, oh, well, we limited it or restricted it, but in fact, it looks like what they did is they simply moved it over out of the public realm into the secret world. What worries Kate Martin about total information awareness is the technological dream that underlies it. If the Defense Department is able to demonstrate that it can be done, she says, then it will be done. Here's the problem, I think, is that once the tool exists and once people say, well, it might be useful in locating terrorists, there will just be no way politically to prevent them from doing it. It's almost an analogy to the atomic bomb. Once they build the technological capability of the government to amass all information about everybody and then process it, the law is just not going to be strong enough to protect people's privacy against that capability, especially because we have to write the laws at the moment in an atmosphere where the whole assumption is that 
national security interests are more important and that if the government says they need the authority, they should have the authority. And it's not an atmosphere that promotes really reasoned or rational approach to what are very difficult questions. And it's very dangerous, I think, in the long term in terms of what kind of country we are and in terms of what kind of world we're going to end up living in because it really does promote the idea that the entire population inside our borders is suspicious. The pursuit of total information awareness is a sign for Kate Martin of what's wrong with the war on terrorism. What's needed, she thinks, is a disciplined focus on the proven threat, al-Qaeda. But instead, she says, the net of suspicion is being thrown far and wide. There is always a great temptation on the part of the government to target those who look like terrorists or those who share their religious convictions of terrorists or those who even share the political convictions of terrorists because those individuals are much easier to find. And there's kind of a great public appetite for action, for retribution, for revenge, for prevention. But it's not only dangerous to civil liberties and dangerous to kind of basic notions of judicial independence and what having a system of law means, but it's also very dangerous from the standpoint of actually being effective against terrorists. Because what we need is a system of surveillance authorities and a counterterrorism system that forces the FBI and the CIA to focus on the truly dangerous individuals. And spending all of these resources and effort on total information awareness or on selective enforcement of our immigration laws permits the government to say we're doing what we were told to do and yet has a great chance, I think, of missing the next, you know, hijackers sent by al-Qaeda. Kate Martin draws a distinction here between resourceful intelligence, which she sees as urgently necessary, and universal suspicion, which she thinks may prove distracting as well as destructive of civil liberty. The pertinence of her argument is underlined by David Lyon, a professor of sociology at Queen's University and the author of several books on surveillance. He's made a close study of the smart cameras, biometric scanners, and data mining tools that are now being used to maintain broad-scale surveillance. And he's noticed something curious. You have to ask yourself, well, with all this panoply of high-tech equipment, surely we would expect that if we read stories in the paper or see them on the TV news of cells being busted or of some global guerrilla group being infiltrated and uh, members being apprehended, we would anticipate that one of these multi-million dollar gizmos would have been behind that apprehension. Well, I challenge you to find any report that has ever mentioned any of these new high-tech methods for the apprehension of so-called terrorists that has worked. If you read the reports, it's old-fashioned informers. It's the use of undercover agents. It's the use of 
old face-to-face -face intelligence that has led to each of the cases as it's occurred in Pakistan, Indonesia, Germany, Britain, and so on. I have yet to read a report, at least, that mentions one of these high-tech devices. An example of such a high-tech device is the facial recognition closed-circuit television system that has been installed at Boston's Logan Airport, the source of two of the fatal flights on 9-11. According to David Lyon, it cannot be operated as intended because it generates so many false positives that it paralyzes the airport. There's a kind of tragedy of technology going on there where the very system cannot ever be calibrated to work in the way that it is supposed to work without preventing the airport functioning, which is what airports are supposed to do. So, and there's a huge problem there, but then there's also the problem of what these systems do actually achieve. And all of them that are attempting to preempt terrorist activities are based on, again, searchable databases, attempting to categorize, cluster, sort out specific categories of suspicion. And what they do is pick up all kinds of petty criminals and also mistaken identities, which leads to all the problems that we've already heard with numerous cases since 9-11 of uh, people being apprehended, even deported, imprisoned, and so on and so forth, with uh, no evidence but this system that somehow caught it within its gaze. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. Security is the theme of this series by David Cayley. His subject tonight is surveillance. We've been talking so far tonight about surveillance in the interests of national security. But this is by no means the only justification for increased surveillance or the only field in which one sees it. So I want to turn in the next section of the program to a very different case, one drawn from an industrial setting. Catherine Lapel is a professor of law at the University of Quebec at Montreal, and she's been doing research on video surveillance of injured workers. Here's an example. Say the doctor says to you that you can no longer return to work if you have to raise your arm above the shoulder. They would then will have a worker filmed, clandestinely filmed under surveillance, doing a grocery shopping. And one of the cases I, I heard an interview, this is a woman with three children, a single mom with three kids, who is out of work because she's under on workers' compensation, and she was a minimum wage worker when she was a worker. So she's probably getting about nine or $10,000 a year compensation. And we know the way that the grocery stores are set, are set up. The expensive things are at eye level, and the, the sales are at higher up. So this woman stretched up to pick up the cheaper can of tomato sauce, and that's what she was filmed doing. And then they produce the film and say, you can stretch that arm farther than you say. And we're going to put this into evidence and say that you're a liar if uh, you contest your claim and if you go into appeal. So that's, in the nutshell, an illustration of the type of thing that we'll see. We get somebody followed around for two or three days, two or three days or more. I mean, I've seen people followed for six months. But you get people followed by people with cameras. 
who are paid to follow them around and film them. And you try to get them, from the point of view of the surveillance firm, you try to get them, catch them in the action of doing something they shouldn't be doing. And then you use the tape to either get the person to drop their claim, and that seems to be, from my interview data, what they're using them for far more than for putting them into evidence. Just the existence of the tape has such a traumatic effect on the workers that they... Uh, they drop the case often without even looking at the tape. They're just so afraid. Behind this form of surveillance lies an economic rather than a security rationale. Workers' compensation began as a no-fault system in which all employers in an industry paid the same premium. But this system came under attack in the 1970s. It undermined competitiveness, it was argued, because safety-conscious employers were charged at the same rate as more negligent businesses. So, during the 1980s, premiums were adjusted according to the number of accidents. Some big employers improved safety. Smaller businesses struggling to stay competitive have found it more efficient to try to reduce claims. And they've done it by putting more and more injured workers under surveillance. The surveillance is done, for the most part, by private detective agencies who may be hired either by employers or by compensation boards. The surveillance is concealed, the point being to catch the worker off guard. And occasionally, Catherine Lapel says, it's taken to extraordinary lengths. Perhaps the most intrusive of all is the famous case in which the worker was making love to his wife and there was an infrared camera on their bedroom window and uh, they were filmed in the act of making love and then the employer put this into evidence in an arbitration hearing. And the arbitrating decision maker in his wisdom said that this was a bit over the top and he watched the film but he wasn't going to take it into consideration. Uh, now that doesn't happen every day. I, I've only heard one of those, except it's a, it's a quite a famous case. And you, once you you've seen that, then you imagine all the other cases that you don't know about. You know, but I've spoken to injured workers who have had private detectives sneak into their homes under false pretenses by saying, for, "Say your house is for sale," um, and the t private detective will pretend to be an interested buyer and will go into the house and take pictures, take pictures of you doing things. I've interviewed a worker who both the employer and the CSST, the Workers' Compensation Board, had both hired private detective firms to follow this poor man around. And one of those detectives actually got into his home through false pretenses and uh, asked his wife all sorts of questions without identifying himself in any way and saying, oh, how, this isn't interesting. I'm, I might rent a room in this because she was renting rooms. And um, how does it work? And, oh, I, here's your husband. Is, is your husband at home? Oh, I, how, how is that? Oh, he's an injured worker, is he? Oh, well, I guess he, he helps you around the house quite a bit, does he? So uh, for me, and this is for me very violating because it's setting up the family to talk about, in, in all innocence, to talk about their injured worker, and then it, it enters into the whole family dynamic, and it creates uh, all sorts of levels and levels of guilt. Uh, it's, there's lots and lots of cases in several Canadian provinces of injured workers being filmed while they're with their kids. It's very invasive. The full extent of surveillance of injured workers is unknown, 
But Catherine Lapel says that in Quebec, over a four-year period, the Compensation Board alone ordered surveillance in an average of over a 1,000 cases a year. Usually, this is the kind of passive surveillance she's been describing. But her research has also turned up cases of entrapment. Neighbors have caught private security guards um, taking the air out of workers' tires. Uh, And this has since been documented on several occasions as a strategy to get workers to bend down. Is for the bad back cases. If your man bends down because he's got a flat tire, and even better, if he changes the tire, then you've got your case against him completely because he's proven that he can bend down, which is something he's not supposed to be doing. And I've spoken to people who have represented workers in which the neighbors came to testify that they saw this private security person taking the air out of the tire. One of the perverse effects of surveillance of injured workers, according to Catherine LaPelle, is that it tends to criminalize the worker's convalescence. One normally gets better by exercising the injured function. But under surveillance, any evidence that you're improving may count against your claim. A woman who was profoundly depressed after having been scalped in a work accident, another extremely serious work accident, and serious, serious depression. And the film shows her leaving her apartment, which in itself is something that her caseworkers kept saying, try to go out, try to not have agoraphobia, which is what she had. So the woman actually manages to get out. And then they film her. So is she ever going to go out again, this woman? I mean, what are we doing to these people? And the reason this woman is being filmed is that it's very, very clear that she's going to be a very costly claim because she's very, very seriously disabled. And that's, that's something that is corroborated in many, many jurisdictions. The reasons they'll start spying on somebody, sometimes it's because they have suspicions that the person is doing something they shouldn't. Sometimes it's an anonymous. They have snitch lines in Ontario and BC, for instance, on the internet. There's a phone number you can call if you want to denounce somebody in pure anonymity. You don't even have to leave your name. Okay? So then they'll start following the person around. But one thing that I'm, I have seen is that there are cases where the only known explanation for why we started following this person is that this is a very costly claim. What about the problem of fraud? Real fraud, I would have to define, and and I would. Uh, there are two levels at which um, somebody who is not ill and who is pretending to be ill, for me, is is real fraud. And there are very, very few cases that I have seen like that. People who are, for instance, working elsewhere and collecting under three different names. That for me, that is real fraud. And any statistics I've seen in any jurisdiction, never, even in the most conservative places, will say it's more than three percent. You know, we're talking about really, really small numbers. And what they put in their 3%, that includes people that I personally, as a lawyer, would not call people who have committed fraud. Often we'll see people who, because they're not believed, feel that they have to exaggerate their symptoms. And so I'll bring my cane, even though I don't use it all the time. Again, for me, these are not cases of real fraud. These are cases of people who might be occasional liars, but the the reason they're feeling that they have to lie and to be absolute in what they're saying is often because they're not believed if they say, well, one out of every two days I can't get up. 
because one out of every two days they figure is not good enough. And if you're unlucky enough to have your doctor's appointment on the day where you feel better, then you know that the day before and the day after you you might feel worse, so they, you have to sort of try and make the doctors understand that sometimes it's worse and therefore um, they, they come out looking like liars. I'm not saying that this is uh, a skillful strategy on the part of the workers, but these are not fraudulent workers in my book. They get labeled as fraudulent workers by people who say, see, we have a videotape evidence that this is a fraudulent claim because Esmeralda waited for the bus standing up for 15 minutes and she's refused jobs at work because she doesn't want to do prolonged standing. Injured workers, in Catherine LaPelle's view, are increasingly being treated like criminals. But unhappily for them, she says, they are not accorded the same rights as criminals. Privacy law in general states that if to catch a criminal, you cannot set up a video surveillance of this criminal without a warrant. Same way you can't set up a tape recorder and start taping people's conversations. The same use of video surveillance to catch an injured worker, the discourse of the courts is that the rules don't have to apply in the same way because this isn't criminal, it's regulatory. And therefore, we don't have to be so stringent with the application of our rules to protect the right of the accused because these people are not criminally accused. They're only accused under penal or regulatory statutes in the province. We have case law in Quebec that says that, and that as a result, the privacy rights should not apply so stringently. But what we're doing is we're stigmatizing these injured workers as if they are frauds, and at the same time we're depriving them of all the rights of real criminals because they're saying, well, these people aren't real criminals, they're just injured workers, so we won't give them their rights, but we'll be able to film them and we'll be able to use the evidence and it's not a violation of rights because they're not charged under criminal statutes. But they're certainly stigmatized as if they're criminals. And they're stigmatizing themselves. I mean, there's a study that came out of Ontario in 2001 that a very significant, I think it's 27% of the people studied, the injured worker studies, felt that they were treated like bandits, like criminals. And these aren't people under surveillance. These are just injured workers who made a claim at the WSIB. That's a lot of people. And, and in the interviews I'm doing in Quebec in terms of how people feel in relation to the system, I don't say, by the way, do you feel like a bandit, but over and over again, they say, oh, we feel like criminals, we feel like bandits, we feel like frauds, we feel like our neighbors think we're frauds, we think our coworkers think we're frauds. Um, and where does this come from? I mean, if, if it's perfectly acceptable to start having private surveillance of these people, then maybe they are sort of criminals, and they're, maybe it's sort of legitimate to treat them like criminals. Surveillance creates a climate of suspicion and intimidation, Catherine LaPelle says, whatever the merits of a given case may be. The justification offered is that it controls costs by discouraging marginal or frivolous claims. But for her, this rationale represents the triumph of economics, over humanity. What used to be giving human support to an injured worker has become managing your injured worker, be it on the part of the workers' compensation boards or on the part of the employers. And when you manage something, you're commodifying it. And you're taking the soul out of it. And therefore, doing things that are not 
I mean, it's not just that it's not nice. Doing things that are really inhumane, if you think about what you're doing, um, become acceptable because the system no longer invites you to think about what you're doing. It invites you to think about the bottom line, the management, uh, the reduction in accidents. All the workers' compensation boards that I know in Canada, they're all really proud of the reduction of the number of accidents. When we start wondering why those accident numbers are going down, there is very, very little data out there that allows us to conclude that it's mostly because we're preventing them. And there are very few studies that are financed that look into where these people are going and why we are reducing our work accidents. And when you start asking the workers, it's because they don't want to claim anymore. So where we're going with all of this is we're subtracting, without changing our legislation, which is a lot of trouble because, you know, you go into Parliament and then you have to talk about real issues in Parliament. We are managing away the existence of injured workers. And we're making them disappear from the statistics by making the status so undesirable that nobody's claiming anymore. Or, I mean, some people are claiming, but we, we've got significant reductions. But we're, we've... I'm sure, and there is some evidence, some scientific evidence in specific fields that people are underclaiming for certain types of disability uh, very, very significantly. They're just not going to the workers' compensation boards anymore. So it's really as if the whole society has become predicated on the health of the stock market and the competition of industry. And that's just no way to run a society. Filming of injured workers offers an example of an intrusive, even hostile use of surveillance. People followed, surreptitiously recorded, even entrapped. But a lot of the surveillance that goes on today is of quite a different kind. It's ubiquitous, routine, apparently benign, almost unnoticed. David Lyon of Queen's University has written several books on the myriad forms of monitoring, tracking, and profiling that together comprise what he calls the surveillance society. Until recently, he says, surveillance was usually thought of as a tentacle of centralized power. George Orwell's 1984, where Big Brother is watching you, is a classic formulation of this view. But today, he suggests, surveillance is much more dispersed. Let's start with Big Brother because that gives you a nice sort of um, paradigm with which to begin. But Big Brother is a singular character for one thing. There is an apex to the pyramid of power and at that apex you find Big Brother, the sinister figure of Big Brother, who then of course appears in uh, 1984 on all the telly screens and, and so on. Uh, power is very centralized in that view, and power is seen as manipulative and controlling. Now contrast Big Brother with the surveillance that we see today. 
I want to argue that surveillance is everywhere. It's in the loyalty cards in the supermarket from which personal data habits of uh, purchasing are being extracted. In our frequent flyer points, in the barcodes, in the personal identification numbers, in our telephone records, email logs, surfing patterns, in our entry into buildings. In all these ways there are multiple levels and styles of surveillance, right down to what Michel Foucault called the capillary level of everyday life. The minutiae, those daily routines that, and this is the important point, we take for granted. We simply don't think about the fact that we're presenting a card here or producing an identifier there. It's part of the routine of everyday life. So what's the connection between that collection of uh, data that is circulating out there and frequently gives us a discount here or a faster passage there or immunity from prosecution there or a better insurance rate here? I mean, it all seems so innocent. Well, the connection is this, that in Big Brother there is an agency of, in that case, control. Here we have an agency of what we might call governance. In other words, the ways in which everyday life is ordered, is channeled. And so I want to suggest that in all these everyday ways our choices get guided. Our life chances are channeled in a particular direction. It's not that some uh, puppeteer is controlling us at a distance. It's rather that an agenda is being set. The parameters are being produced by this means. And sometimes it's very uh, overt and direct. I mean, there was a, uh, a very good story in the British Sunday Times last week about um, companies who use call centers and um, they discriminate between the calls coming from persons from different postal codes. And so as the call comes in, the number is connected with the postal code, and the wealthier postal code originating calls get diverted to operators who are there to give them discounts, better deals, personalized service, after-sales service, and so on and so forth. And those coming from poorer postal code areas are put straight into the line of uh, hold until the next uh, available operator is available to speak for, to you and once you actually get onto that then the operator has been trained to get the line cleared of that customer as fast as possible. Now it's very subtle and those of us who might come from richer postcode areas will discover that this is a marvelous system and people are offering us all kinds of deals. Those of us who come from some bad address will discover without ever knowing how it happened that we simply don't get any service at all. So it's subtle but what I'm trying to say is that it has consequences. The parameters of life are being sorted for us and it doesn't happen in an overt way. Contemporary surveillance systems invisibly sort, classify, and channel people, according to David Lyon. And this sorting, of course, depends on the capacity of digital technology. Programmers look for what computer lingo calls algorithms, 
coded formulas that find patterns in masses of stored data. Let's say we're talking about a parking lot and we're looking at uh, a system that is intended to increase the security of the parking lot. You're looking for an algorithm that will detect certain patterns of behavior so that if there is a figure, regardless of whether you can recognize that figure, if there is a figure who is moving from car to car or around the car park in a way that does not suggest that she is simply trying to get into her own car find or find it and of course that's exactly where these things break down the pattern could be a pattern of something quite different but the ideal is to find the algorithm is to code the system such that it will recognize this particular sequence a system is uh, being used in the uh, subway in London the tube where the attempt is being made to tell in advance whether or not there is likely to be a suicide on the tracks. And uh, here again, you look for the algorithm. The person who is standing, or rather the figure, because the person hasn't come into it yet, it's just a figure, a human figure on the screen, who waits on the edge of the platform after several trains have gone by and hasn't actually gotten onto any of the single trains that has gone by. This becomes a pattern that, if you've got the algorithm right, can be captured as a potential situation where a suicide might be about to occur. Uh, so that's the way in which the algorithm works. You're trying to extract from situations certain key bits of data which you concatenate or put together in a particular sequence in order to code everything that then follows within the system to recognize that gait, that pattern of behavior, that facial configuration, or whatever it is. Both of David Lyon's examples here involve fitting people to pre-existing profiles and then managing them according to what the profile is likely to do. This is a procedure with implications that go beyond reducing car thefts or suicides the very aim of governance shifts from the present to the future. One is trying to control what might happen, David Lyon says, and this challenges a lot of traditional thinking in very fundamental ways. The very idea of uh, predicting and preempting and preventing certain things happening means that there's a shift away from practices that might previously have been important. For example, presumptions of innocence. What happens to, to the presumption of innocence when your current status depends on some extrapolation from the future? Now, think of it in terms of health records, for example, and uh, the kinds of health surveillance that goes on in order to try to predict what kind of outcome there is of present symptoms that the patient might have? What if your insurance premium is changed on the basis of some likelihood of future alterations in your health state? What if your proclivity to a certain kind of criminality has been worked out on the basis of behaviours that already are extant? So I think it does raise a lot of very profound questions. The attempt to prevent, preempt, predict the future is overturning some of our 
more traditional ways of understanding human behavior, of understanding justice. As I say, presumptions of innocence, due process, these kinds of things are, are really questioned in new ways by this concern with the future. David Lyon connects new technologies of surveillance with the governance of the future. People are sorted into classes by their purchases, by their postal codes, by their travel destinations, in order to predict and manage their future behavior. For the favored classes, this may produce nothing worse than an unsolicited platinum card. But the less favored often end up in what David Lyon calls categories of suspicion. I mean, if you think about the uh, ways in which the um, uh, Canada Customs files are matched with the files from uh, employment benefits, such that if you're crossing the border from Ontario into New York State and you are unemployed and uh, using that insurance benefit, Canada Customs can automatically check your purchases while you've been in the United States to discover whether there is a likelihood that you are spending beyond your means, identified by the benefit, and therefore potentially double-dipping, obtaining some income from elsewhere. Now, let's say I was uh, unemployed and crossing the border to buy some stereo equipment for my brother, and I make this large purchase and I come back across the border. I have been targeted and I'm already in a category of suspicion just by virtue of the fact that I crossed the border carrying consumer durables that were, quote, beyond my means to buy. The fact that I have committed no crime whatsoever, I have not been double dipping, is beside the point. The system predicted that I was that kind of a person, put me in that category, and until and the onus is on me, until I can show that I am not, in fact, correctly associated with that category, I remain in the category. A society that manages by automated sorting is a product of two forces. One, obviously, is the technology that does the sorting. The other is the increased distance between people. The faster and farther we move, and the more we depend on expert systems, the less we know one another, and the less we depend on one another. The result, David Lyon says, is a kind of disembodiment. People are no longer known as embodied persons. They're known by the credentials with which the surveillance system equips them. If we're looking at how surveillance is produced in its contemporary form, we have again to look not at some power that is, as it were, out to find us and get us, but rather at the simple fact that we've created far more mobile and communicative kinds of societies. And as there is this greater mobility, so there is an increasing felt need to keep in touch, to keep tabs on populations and groups for employers, for corporations looking after consumers, uh, for governments, whatever. Many agencies are trying to keep in touch. And so rather than rely on the old recognition of a friend or an acquaintance of a or a neighbor, you have to produce some kind of token of trust, some kind of evidence 
produce your driver's license, please. Put in your PIN number, because then we'll know that you are the person that you say you are. It's a token of trust or of trustworthiness. And so, in a sense, all these little visible signs of an invisible network of surveillance are, in that sense, relatively innocent. But what they create is this whole assemblage of um, surveillance, which may end up having very specific categories of suspicion, or in the case of the consumer world, what I think of category, uh, as categories of seduction, where you're being lured into purchase, where management opportunities are being created by surveillance. So disembodiment occurs as bodies disappear in that communicative process. We, we lose touch. The corporation knows only this fragment of data about us or this fragment in relation to those fragments. They don't know us as embodied, enfleshed human beings. And so the whole system depends on abstract fragments of data and in that sense is, is deeply disembodied. Now, if you were to ask me, well, what would be a way of confronting ethically, even before the politically, these kinds of surveillance systems, I would say two crucial things. One has to do with embodiment. In other words, let us remember that in the real world we are first of all embodied persons. We are people who live in the flesh and our life chances in the world where we have to eat and find shelter are in some cases at risk. So. Embodiment strikes me as being peculiarly important, both for understanding how surveillance occurs in its modern disembodied way, but also for understanding where there might be some grounds for critique. And the other has to do, if embodiment is one, our being social is another, that we are one with others, and uh, it's in our relationships that uh, life is lived. Surveillance systems tend to abstract out not only fragments of personal data, but fragments of highly individualized data, so that they refer more and more narrowly to the atom of me or you, rather than to us in our relationships. And that's a crucial difference that uh, we forget at our peril. Uh, as soon as we start thinking about sociality, then questions about who's included, who's excluded, who is part of our social group and who is not, become really important questions. And that that is determined merely by some, again, algorithmic categorization, then again, it goes against the grain of who we are as human beings. To David Lyon, sociability and embodiment provide the standpoints from which one can look critically and skeptically at surveillance society. Those who are only sorted into preferred categories may not feel the need for such a critique. But if you're an injured worker, a Muslim traveler, or just someone with an inferior postal code, the case is different. And it is surveillance as a source of prejudice, deprivation, and exclusion that finally concerns David Lyon. We have found modes of including and excluding that are automatic. They have this clinical appearance to them. They're within a technological system, after all. And some people may prefer the technological system. The, the worker in the uh, factory might prefer the fact that there's a camera on them, and many 
say that they do, because it gives them a chance to prove to the employer that they were actually doing what they should have been doing at the time quoted. So it's not that they're always negative, but rather that we can be put unconsciously within certain categories and that those categories have an impact upon us. What we're doing, I think, in part, is producing systems that automate the process of, as it were, walking by on the other side. We can simply exclude and abandon. We can forget. We can put out of mind, in automated ways, certain groups of people who, through no fault of their own, have now been categorized and are attached to that category until they do something about it. So that seems to me to be a profound shift, the automating of exclusion, the automating of passing by on the other side. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to the concluding program of our 10-hour series called In Search of Security by David Cayley. The series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and to its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Studio production tonight was by Dave Field. Richard Handler was the editorial consultant... Liz Naj, the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416 416- 205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht and I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows, then the arts today and between the covers. Mm-hmm.